Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are, of course, continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. So we are in Matthew chapter 5, if you'll be finding that. As you are, I will remind you that we are uh, back in life groups. We came back last week, but last week was uh, sort of just a review. So tonight, uh, we get back into our book entitled Gentle and Lowly. Uh, And we are in chapters 13 and 14. If you've not been coming, you are certainly welcome to join us. We have extra books. We have extra room in homes. We have a a group that's meeting here in the fellowship hall. So it is not too late to join us, even if we are halfway through the book. It's the first time we've ever done a book over multiple semesters, but you are welcome to join us. The gist of that book, the theme verse from that book is found in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, and here's the phrase, I am gentle and lowly in heart. That part of the verse is the theme verse for that book. And frankly, if we're honest, some of us have struggled with this book. Some of us don't like this book. Some of us have been critical of this book and all of that is perfectly okay. You do not have to like everything the author says. You do not have to agree with everything the author says. You can learn from someone who doesn't match up with exactly everything you agree with. And that is something that is foreign to many of us in this day. But it's okay to disagree with the author of a book. But I think one of the reasons, not the sole reason, but one of the reasons some of us have struggled with this book is because this is not a book about Jesus' teaching. This is not a book about Jesus' actions. That is, it doesn't tell us about his miracles and healings. This is a book about the heart or even the emotions of Jesus. And because of that, some of us have struggled with some of the things that are said therein. It's hard for us to match up some of the things we're reading with our previous thoughts about who Jesus is. I was in Bojangles over the holidays. I was there to pick up a biscuit. I go in because I don't trust the drive-through. Tracy gets on to me for that, but I go in every time. And so I was inside Bojangles. I'd ordered my biscuit. I was waiting on it to arrive. And I noticed there was two men sitting at a table. Two large men sitting at a table. Both of them were just big men. They were probably over 300 pounds. And there in the middle of the table were not only the remnants of their breakfast, but there were two books sitting on the table. Guess what they were? Gentle and lowly. Here were two men who were not part of our church. I do not know who they are. And yet they, they, there they were in a Bojangles studying together the book Gentle and Lowly. And frankly, I admit it struck me as a little bit odd. Not because they were in a restaurant doing that. Plenty of people do that. But because they were large men. And because of my misconception 
and yours too, about what it means to be gentle and lowly. You see, I didn't, these guys didn't strike me as that. And yet here they were talking about the very things of Jesus. I, I think it shows me and us that there is this contradiction in our own minds about what it means to be gentle. You say, well, why are you talking about gentleness this morning? Why are you talking about the book? The book is for our topic tonight. Well, because that word gentle in Matthew chapter 11 is the same word that we find in Matthew chapter 5, which is our beatitude this morning. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, it's translated meek in most of our translations. But it is the same word that Jesus says of himself in Matthew chapter 11. And we've admitted all along that these beatitudes are often difficult for us to understand and certainly easy to ignore. The crowd that Jesus preached to on this day for this Sermon on the Mount certainly did not understand the things he was saying. They did not anticipate a meek Jesus being followed by a meek band of disciples. Rather, they were looking for and expecting a powerful kingdom. Today, these truths are often ignored because we too find them difficult to not, even under, not only understand, but also to apply to our lives. Furthermore, as I've said throughout, these are in many ways contradictory, certainly to the world. These statements of Jesus are entirely anti-cultural. They go against everything else we hear all week long. But we've also acknowledged even though it's not a very good way to say it, we've also acknowledged that in some sense they're almost anti-Christian and that they are not the things we normally associate with being a follower of Christ such that a nominal Christian is certainly not going to want to nor make an effort to put these into practice in his or her life. We began by talking about being spiritually poor. Our title was Spiritual Poverty. And that was not a financial thing, that was a spiritual thing. That is, we acknowledge that we are sinners in need of a savior. And then last week we dealt with the topic of spiritual mourning. A logical step once we recognize our sin and our separation from God as a result of that sin, we now mourn over that sin. And we said both of those things are not one-time events that happened prior to salvation, but they are ongoing realities in our life. And so this morning from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, we talk about spiritual meekness. I'm not promising that all of our titles are going to coincide like that, but so far the three have. And I think there's a logical progression here as well, because it is only the person who has recognized their spiritual poverty, who has then mourned over their spiritual life or condition, who is prepared to be spiritually meek. So let's look at Matthew 5. I'm going to start in verse 1 again. We're going to do this throughout the Beatitudes. And I recognize we're moving quite slowly through the Beatitudes. But I do promise we will speed up after the Beatitudes are behind us. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
And our verse for today, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now we're going to start this morning with some myths of meekness because this is a topic that many of us misunderstand. If we even think about it at all, it's an idea, it is a quality, it is a characteristic of someone's life that we have a difficult time pinning down. And so we're actually going to start, as we have the last two weeks, in trying to define what meekness is, we're going to talk about what it is not. Because sometimes it's easier to get a grasp on what something means by acknowledging what it does not mean. Again, you can go to countless seminars, success seminars in our society, and you are never going to hear this word used, at least not in a positive way. Because the world says, in order for you to be successful, you must be aggressive. In fact, you must even be a bit, if not even more than that, on the arrogant side. I mean, if you hope to make it in life, being meek is not going to be the admirable quality that Jesus makes it out to be. So you've got to do what's in your best interest. You've got to assert your rights. The end justifies the means. So if you've got somewhere you want to be, some success or ladder you want to climb, then it is up to you to assert yourself. However, as I said here, Jesus says the pathway not to happiness. Blessed does not mean happiness in the sense that we normally use it. He's talking about lasting and abiding satisfaction. And he promises it here in this verse for the person who is meek. So what does that not mean? Well, meekness is not someone who is a wallflower. That's a word we use to describe a person who does not participate in social events because they are shy, because they are nervous, because they are afraid of being called out in front of people. You remember this from your middle school dance where most of the guys stood against the wall afraid to participate at all. We were hoping not to be seen. I did that. We were hoping not to be seen. We were a wallflower. And we just wanted the thing to be over so that we would not embarrass ourselves. Meekness does not mean that we compromise at any cost. We do not seek peace at any cost. Yes, we do seek to compromise. And yes, there is a call for peace. In fact, we'll see that later in the Beatitudes, but not at any cost. Very few people enjoy conflict. If you do, you've got some other issues in your character. But very few people enjoy conflict, and yet it is a reality of life. And yet we are not to seek peace at any cost. There are plenty of times when, in fact, we must fight. Not physically, but I mean fight for something that's worth fighting for. Defending our faith. And this does not conflict with the idea of being meek. The world views someone who is meek as a man or woman who has no opinion or no thoughts of themselves. They simply let others control their lives, doing what anybody else tells them to do. Furthermore, the meek person is seen as someone with no backbone or conviction. And yet, I hope you understand these are all myths. This, these are not what it really means to be meek. Because Jesus is not offering a blessing for those who never stand up for anything, for those who never hold their convictions with courage. It's not that at all. In fact, we'll see in a moment that there are plenty of men in Scripture, and we're going to look at 
four or five of them who were great leaders and very successful in their lives and yet were meek at the same time. So if we have any hope to apply these verses accurately to our lives, we've got to understand what they are not. Jesus is not talking here about a natural niceness. He's not talking about someone with an easygoing personality such that you might say, well, that's just not my personality. No, this is a call for all believers. Remember, this is kingdom living. And if you're part of the kingdom, you are called to live this way. So it's not about being naturally nice or easygoing. This is not someone who is wishy-washy or indecisive. This is not someone who is timid or lacks confidence. All of those are myths of meekness. Well, let's talk about what meekness is then. And we'll do that under the second heading, our manifestations of meekness. What does it mean then to be meek? In other words, let's look a, look, look a little closer at what meekness is. One commentator has declared that this word is probably the hardest word in all of the Bible to accurately define. I think in all the commentaries that I read, the best definition I came up with, or the best definition I read, I didn't come up with it, was meekness is power under control. Now, it seems rather odd to define meekness using the word power. But again, that's because of the myths that we just talked about. The word for meek that we find here was used outside of the Bible to refer to a naturally wild animal who had been broken in order that they might be of service, be of service in work. Or it was used of a gentle breeze, a soothing medicine. Think about that gentle breeze for a moment. I know it's not summertime, and I know it's rather cold and rainy this morning, but think forward to the summertime when it's hot and you are sitting on the front porch or the back patio and you have a nice glass of iced tea in your hand and it is stifling hot until that gentle breeze starts blowing. And how refreshing that gentle breeze is. And yet we understand that that gentle breeze is also wind. And wind, when it is not under control in that sense, can and is very powerful. And that gentle breeze, when it becomes much more than that, can actually destroy homes and property and down power lines. So a breeze is a good example of power under control, as is the idea of a horse that is broken. I used to ride horses. That may surprise some of you, but horses are powerful animals. And yet these powerful animals can be controlled by a bit and bridle. And they can be made to go where you want them to go. So I want you to understand that meekness does not imply weakness. It simply means being strong enough to be gentle. This is the person who has no pride or vainglory because, again, they recognize themselves as sinners in the eyes of God. We recognize that there is nothing worthy in us. We are who we are because of what God has graciously done and given to us. And when we see ourselves, if I might rehash again, when we see ourselves as poor in spirit and mourn our sin, then we come to the place that we realize in the eyes of God, we have nothing to bring. And as a result, we can in fact be meek because we recognize God has been gracious. 
The Apostle Paul, in one of his most famous verses, said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, a man or woman who sees themselves as crucified with Christ can then live unto God as a meek individual. Because such a person has now died to all of our rights. We have no rights because before God we are nothing. And therefore we can be long-suffering and patient with others even when we are treated unjustly. Now that is very easy to say, but much harder to practice. In fact, it is easy for most of us to say that before the eyes of God, we recognize that we have no rights because spiritually we understand that. But when someone else tramples our rights, now we want to rear up and give someone a piece of our minds, right? I mean, I'm currently dealing with a situation in my life where we had, I had a minor accident some months ago. The car's fixed and I've paid what I was supposed to pay, but I haven't gotten my money back from the other guy yet because it was his fault. And I haven't gotten my money back from him because he's refusing to answer his phone. His agents called him, the claims department's called him, and he just won't answer his phone. So in the future, if I'm ever the cause of an accident, I've discovered that's just the way to get out of it. Just don't answer your phone. And so I'm a guy who expects justice and I'm owed some money from this guy. And so I'm getting a little frustrated about it. I'm getting a little upset about it. This has violated my rights. Someone has taken something that does not belong to them. It belonged to me. And therefore I'm having a very difficult time being meek in the midst of this process. Instead, I want to do what many of us do and fire off some emails to my agent or the claims department. I don't have his number, so I'm not going to call him, but I want to make sure I get what is coming to me. It is very much easier for us to retaliate than it is to forgive. And yet the meek individual understands that there is never the right to retaliate or seek revenge because meekness certainly doesn't go in that direction. And again, I said this is contrary to what we see throughout the world. It is interesting in the Gospels that we never see Jesus defending himself. He defends the name of God. He defends other people. But when it comes to mistreatment upon himself, he lets it go. He learns to leave everything as we should in the hands of the Father. And this indeed is a difficult lesson to learn because everybody else tells us we have to stick up for ourselves because no one else will. And yet God sees what we endure and he knows what uh, we are going through and he is certainly capable to defend our name. Therefore the meek individual is quietly submitting himself or herself to the will of God even when we don't quite agree with that will nor understand it. Because the meek individual has understood that God's will is what is best for our lives and his glory is more important than our own rights. Meekness as the child of God means accepting uncomplainingly what comes, knowing that it comes from the hand of God and that God is the one who orders all things. So whatever he sends or allows into our lives, we accept it by faith even when it hurts because it is for our good 
and the good of others. And so meekness, we must understand, involves denying our rights, but I'm not talking about denying the rights of God. Because God-given meekness can also stand up for God-given rights. There's a distinction there. That it's not about me. I'm not standing up for my own rights, but I am willing to stand up and be heard for the name and the rights of God. Again, our natural reaction is to strike back when someone violates us, but kingdom living is so much different. Now again, because of this is so difficult to define, I thought maybe the best way for us to get a better grasp of what this means is to see some models of meekness. What does this look like in the pages of God's word through individuals that we are familiar with? I think you'll see in every example that I'm about to give that these were men who were very prominent, who were very successful, who achieved a lot in the name of God during their life and yet they were also meek. Let's begin with the patriarch Abraham. Abraham, as you know, was a wealthy man whom God had given much land and uh, substance, all kinds of property and all kinds of livestock. At one point in his life, he lived close by his nephew Lot and his nephew Lot was also quite wealthy. So much so that the two of them got to a point in their lives where they could not live side by side. The land just wouldn't sustain everything that they had and so they needed to separate. And so Abraham comes to Lot and makes him aware of the situation that we must go our separate ways, one way and one the other. Now Abraham is the elder and in a culture in which the elder had all of the rights, Abraham could have simply said to Lot, this is the land I'm taking and you go the opposite direction. But Abraham doesn't do that. He had every right to do it, but he doesn't. Instead, Abraham says to Lot, you choose whichever way you want to go, and I will go in the opposite direction. He voluntarily laid aside his rights and allowed Lot to choose what land he wanted. And of course, Lot did what most of us would have done. He chose the best land. He chose the most favorable path. And Abraham meekly went the other direction. And yet God continued to bless him because he demonstrated a meek attitude. Certainly we think of the man named Joseph, a man who had great dreams about his future, only his brothers didn't quite agree with those dreams. And so they sell him into slavery and Joseph winds up down in Egypt. His father thinks that he is dead. But because Joseph is a faithful man, he quickly rises up in the ranks and he finds himself in Potiphar's household. Only then he is accused of something he did not do. He is accused of coming on to his wife and he is thrown into prison. Once again, having been mistreated now for the second major time in his life, he does not sulk, he does not become bitter. Instead, once again, he remains faithful and he rises up through the ranks again and now he has become the leader in the prison. He is organizing and orchestrating all that is going on in the jail. Eventually he, he is released and he is given the second most powerful position in the kingdom. And because he has told them that there is a famine coming, he is put in charge of collecting the grain for a number of years so that that grain can then be distributed during the years of famine. 
And he does all that and the famine comes and eventually his brothers who had sold him into slavery and convinced his father that he was dead, they come down for food. There's nowhere else they can turn. Ah, now Joseph has his opportunity, doesn't he? He's waited all of these decades and now here are his brothers before him. Now is a chance to no longer hide his ill will or bitterness. He can give them exactly what they deserve. And when he reveals himself to his brothers, that's exactly what they think because they know they deserve it. And yet Joseph assures them, I'm in the place of God. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And God has put me in this place to save many lives. And he provides for them and does so for years to come as they move down to Egypt. Joseph does not do what we would have liked to have done, and that is seek revenge. He does not say, alas, I finally have the opportunity to retaliate the very thing I've been dreaming about all of these years. No, he is a meek man who knows forgiveness. We think of Moses. In fact, the Bible says of Moses that the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. The Bible declares Moses to be the meekest man. And yet, of course, he was a very successful man as well. He stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Pharaoh, led the people of Israel out of Egypt, and of course they spent years grumbling and complaining about his leadership. In fact, there was one occasion where, where they had so complained, they were basically just saying, why didn't you just leave well enough alone? We'd have been better if we were back in Egypt. Can you imagine after all he had done with them? Their answer was, I wish you'd have never come along. And then Miriam and Aaron speak against him. Miriam seems to be the instigator, criticizing Moses for his marriage, but the reality is she's probably upset about his position. Aaron may have been upset that he wasn't consulted about the, the delegation of the power to the 70 elders. And so they begin to criticize his leadership, and it is always easy to criticize those who are in leadership when you are not. And yet Moses was quiet and allowed God to handle the situation. And what did God do? Well, God struck Miriam with leprosy. God did indeed take care of the situation and he struck Miriam with leprosy. What did Moses do in response? Well, what would you have done? You would have said, thank you, God. I was meek and I let you handle it. And you handled it. And she's getting what she deserves. No, Moses prayed for Miriam that God would remove the leprosy from her. Where it would have been very easy for him and us to have said, she is getting from God exactly what she deserves for the way she treated me or the things she said about me. But instead, he prays that God would withhold his hand and heal her. And that is exactly what God did. Certainly, we see a model of meekness in the man named David. A young man who had always been good to King Saul, he had fought many battles and won them for, David, for Saul. But because he was getting more attention than Saul, Saul was jealous and he was ready to kill David. Yet David had been told that he would be the next king. He had been anointed for such a time by the prophet Samuel. But in spite of all of this, he was not yet king, but on multiple occasions he had opportunity to kill Saul and then become the king. And in some sense, he had every right to. 
It was a classic case of self-defense. Saul was doing everything in his power to kill David, the man who had already been anointed by God to be the next king. Why not just defend yourself and kill Saul? On one occasion, David had that opportunity and he cut part of Saul's robe off just to show Saul that I had the chance, but I didn't take it. And David was even grieved over that. He was convicted that he had touched the Lord's anointed. Now we would certainly characterize David as a mighty man. He was a man known for his war and for his battle. In fact, the most prominent story in the life of David is the story of him conquering Goliath. And yet here we see he was a meek man as well. Well, let me give you one final model, and it is the person, of course, of Christ. The book we've already referenced and the verse we've already referenced, Jesus said, I am meek and lowly of heart. When he rode into Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna, he was meek and sitting on a donkey. We would have expected a war horse. We would have expected a, a mighty group of men behind him ready to conquer, but that is not what we find. And yet, would you say that Jesus was a weakling? I certainly hope not. He went into the temple and single-handedly ran everybody out and decreed that this is my father's house and my father's house is a house of prayer. He certainly on numerous occasions stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with the religious leaders of his day, men who in their own minds had the authority to kill him and eventually did. So the fact that Jesus was meek does not mean he was weak. He went to the cross, and even on the cross, he said, Do you not understand that I could call 10,000 legions of angels if I wanted to come down from here? And yet again, he said, I am meek and lowly of heart. Power under control. Well, let me say, lastly, I want to mention the merits of meekness. That is, what are the promises given here for those who live in the kingdom of God, a life of meekness? And as we've seen in the previous weeks and will with all of the other Beatitudes, the first promise is the promise of abiding satisfaction or contentment. That is where we get, that's what we get from the word blessed. You will always be content. You will always be satisfied with whatever comes you, your way because you've learned that you deserve nothing and that everything you have comes from the hands of God who has given it to you for good or ill for a reason. And that means we can do away with greed because we're satisfied with what God gives us. It means we don't have to strive to go beyond what others have. We don't have to pursue everything everybody else has. We can learn to be content with what we do have because we know it comes from the hand of God. So Jesus is promising contentment here. But then there's that last phrase, for they shall inherit the earth. Some people take this as a reversal of fortunes of such. That is those who do not have a lot in this life then have the promise, if they were a follower of Christ, that they will get more. The poor will become rich. But again, we've said each week that these are not about material things. Spiritual poverty is not about a lack of money. And so the same is true here. This is talking about a future promise. It is a spiritual inheritance. That true meekness, that is, this is a characteristic of being in the kingdom of God. And those who are in the kingdom of God will inherit the kingdom. 
Now to us, that normally means heaven. We think about going to heaven when we die and inheriting all that there is there. But certainly we understand in the book of Revelation that God talks about a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of heavens. And we will be established in that new heaven and new earth. And you say, well, what does all that mean? I wish I knew, but I don't. I can't explain all that to you and neither can anybody else. The Bible is not overly specific on what all that means, but we can be assured that it is a tremendous promise nevertheless, that we who live in meekness now will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, not because we've done that. This is not work salvation. This is instead a character quality of the kingdom testifying to the fact that we are part of that kingdom. Now you might ask, is, is this really all necessary? I mean, is meekness really something that we ought to be that overly concerned with? And the answer is yes. Number one, because it says it's necessary to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And number two, because everything else in this world is against that. And we easily fall prey to that as well. I have my opinion and you're going to hear it. I'm going to state my opinion about this topic or that topic. I'm going to shoot off an email to give you a piece of my mind. I'm going to send you a text in the heat of my anger so that you know exactly where I stand. And all of this continues to create division and anger. We are inflated with the idea of our own self-importance. And so we make sure that everyone knows what we think and what we do. And so we post it all for everyone to see. I want to read you a couple of verses as we close just to give you a, an idea of how to apply this to your life. How are we to be meek in the kingdom of heaven? The first is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul, of course, is writing to young Timothy and he says this to him, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. And here's the phrase for which I chose these verses, correcting his opponents with gentleness, meekness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. The second passage I want to read is Psalm 37, verses 7 through 9. Again, this is by way of application, how we can become meek by the power of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Did you see in both of those passages, anger was, court, was, a, was, was, was opposed to meekness? So part of being meek is to put away anger and to wait upon the Lord and trust that he is in charge. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you again for the chance we've had to come this morning.
and to hear from your word a statement that is indeed countercultural. A statement that we will likely not hear anywhere else but in your word. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I pray that we would come to terms with what that means, that you would give us a desire uh, to live that out, for it is a character quality of those living in the kingdom, and that we could find that abundant and abiding satisfaction and contentment, because we are resting and waiting on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.